HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is Tuesday, January 12th, 2021. Welcome 2021. It's our first show of the new year. And believe me, it's a very exciting show because New York State craft beer and malt has come so far in the last eight years. And we're going to be talking uh, with some important fellows from the New York State craft uh, beer scene. So we're going to start by introducing everyone. First, uh, Paul, please introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Paul Leone. I'm the executive director of the New York State Brewers Association. And Jimmy, I do miss doing this with you at Roberta's. I got to tell you. I'm so glad you helped put the show together. Thank you, Paul. And then uh, Dan. Hey, everyone. My name is Daniel Sweeney. I'm a PhD student at Cornell University in plant breeding and genetics, and I'm working on malting barley breeding for New York State. Great, man. And Jason. Hey, everybody. My name is Jason Havens. I'm the president and co-owner of Rusty Nickel Brewing out in West Seneca, New York, and also the president of the West, uh, Western New York Brewers Guild. And I have here with me Dave Johnson. Yeah, and I'm the uh, head brewer and co-owner at Rusty Nickel Brewing Company. And I like to dabble and play with all these uh, fun New York malts that are coming out. Well, that's great. So the backstory on this, uh, Paul, was, you know, 2012 – uh, New York State uh, started the farm brewery license, and one important part of it was the scaling in of the percentage of New York State ingredients that farm breweries would have to use. Do you want to give me a quick introduction to, to that and where we're at now? And then we'll talk about the barley story. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, back in 2012, the farm brewing license was created. Um, and at that time, it was 20% um, New York State hops and 20% all other ingredients, excluding water. And then in five years' time, it would go to 60%. And then in five years' time, it would go to 90%. Actually, right now, we're in the 60% uh, range right now. I think that the interesting part you know, of it is you know, back in the day when this was first created, it was not only to help the brewing industry, but it was also to help agriculture in New York State the hops industry, which used to dominate the country pre-prohibition, the malt industry, which used to 
gosh, I, I you know, I think Daniel, who we'll talk to later, uh, I read a, a stat that they're, we led the country in, in growing, you know, uh, barley as well in New York state. And, and all of a sudden prohibition comes and those crops really kind of go away for the brewing industry. So when the farm brewing license was created, there were no malt houses in New York state. And, and I, you know, there were barely any hops being grown. And since that time, we now have, I believe, 12 malt houses in New York state. Um, and we have 464 breweries, half of which have a farm brewing license. So it certainly did its job. Um, the intent was to grow the brewing industry. The intent was to grow agriculture. Um, and nobody had a crystal ball then, but, but I can tell you that it, it's been really successful so far. I mean, we have the second most breweries in the country and our farm brewing law is a model right now for, for other states uh, who are looking at us to do the same thing. Well, it, it's an amazing story. And I, I remember back then everyone thought, wow, that's a great idea to use New York State uh, grains and uh, hops. And what was funny is I don't think anyone had had New York State barley and beer for a long time. And people were talking about, oh, we could be developing all these other varieties like rye, for example, which apparently doesn't really make uh, a beer on its own. So let's get to Daniel. So developing the strain of barley. You know, give us the backstory. This this really is what this whole show is about. The new barley, and we can announce the name, right? It's Excelsior Gold uh, from Cornell. Yeah. So I'll uh, I think I'll start out with uh, kind of dovetailing with Paul talking about the history just a little bit. Um, so not only did New York used to produce a lot of hops back in the day, um, there's also some substantial barley production and malting in New York State. And by back in the day, I mean in the mid to early 1800s. Um, there's some pretty cool maps that I found uh, from an old, old barley breeder um, publishing a USDA bulletin that shows barley production in New York in that time. And uh, it's kind of cool because the cluster is all in Western New York, right along the Erie Canal. Um, so that's where that's currently where some of the more agriculturally productive land and uh, at least for growing grains in New York is, is in Western New York kind of between Rochester and Buffalo. Um, but back then it was producing a lot of barley because um, the population was a lot more focused in the East. But uh, since then, and with prohibition and some other, you know, population shifting westward and these sorts of things, uh, barley really fell out of favor in New York for a long time. And one reason for that is that uh, New York is a challenging place to grow barley. Um, upstate New York has really lovely summers, but they tend to be humid and have a lot of rain. Uh, and barley actually does better in cooler, drier environments. Most of the malting barley production in North America right now is out west in North Dakota, Montana, uh, Idaho, Canadian prairies, those sorts of places. Um, so all that moisture brings a couple of challenges for growers and also malt houses and breweries. Um, and the big two are diseases and something called pre-harvest sprouting. So um, for any brewers or maltsters who are listening, you're probably familiar with fusarium head blights and uh, the associated toxin called deoxynovalanol, which we tend to just call Don. It's a little bit less of a mouthful. Um, but basically fusarium head blight is a fungus that infects wheat and barley and other grasses as well. Um, but it will cause the kernels to become kind of discolored and shrunken. 
um, but it also produces a toxin, Don, um, that is uh, not very good for humans or for animals. And the thresholds for uh, Don in malting grade barley are very, very low. So that is something that can be at least partially controlled with fungicides, but that's a big uh, target for malting barley production is trying to handle fusarium head blight. The other challenge that wet weather brings for malting barley production is pre-harvest sprouting. Uh, so when you're malting barley, uh, you want it to sprout quickly and uniformly. That's uh, what you need to make good malt. But barley breeders have done almost too good of a job sometimes, and we've developed a lot of barleys that sprout so well and so quickly um, that they will sometimes sprout in the field before they're even harvested if there's a big rain right before harvest. And because we get a lot of rain in New York, uh, this can be in the summers, this can be a problem for us. Um, so those are kind of two of our big targets, uh, and that's why growing barley is tough in New York. Um, and then you add on things like yield and malting quality and all these other things. Uh, there's a lot to work on, um, but it's been a fun challenge. Let me move over to Dave for a minute. So Dave, just give us um, your perspective on what malts you've used from New York State be before this new variety. What, what it's been like the last few years uh, for you at uh, Rusty Nickel? So uh, right now we work with just a few malt houses out here in Western New York. And, you know, when we, when we order our malts from them, we usually getting our, you know, we obviously order our base malts first. So we're looking mostly at, uh, you know, uh, pal malt and pilsner malt for, for our usages. Um, just because we do have a close relationship with the malt houses, we, we actually know what varieties of barley we're getting uh, from the different fields that, that they're getting them from, like Scala, for instance. Um, but not necessarily all of them will, will give you that information. I mean, unless you, unless you ask really what we were looking for, especially, you know, five years ago was just getting the moisture content, right. You know, so, so the grains didn't smear when you ground them and that you, your efficiencies were, were up to par. Now that the grains have gotten so much better, we're down to the minutia of, of varieties and, and the different qualities that we can expect that Dan was just uh, speaking about. So, I mean, the fact that we're here in five years, I think, is a is a testament to all the work that's gone into this. So back to Dan. So, Dan, you know, let's go back to 2014, 2015. I know that Cornell surveyed a number of farmers growing grains. But yeah. What what was the, the state of New York State's grain back then? Right. So you mentioned that the Farm Brewery Bill was passed in 2012, I believe. And at that time... I, I was not in New York State then. I uh, I moved to Cornell from Indiana, but I moved here in 2015 to start my graduate work. But as far as I understand, from 2012 to 2014, uh, 2014 there was uh, not very much malting barley production in New York, and variety choice was somewhat limited. So my advisor, Dr. Mark Sorrells, who's the small grains breeder and a professor at Cornell, um, he brought me on uh, to do this breeding work, because uh, he had spent those few years trialing a number of winter and spring malting barleys. So for those not familiar with growing barley, uh, you can grow, you can plant barley either in the fall, so in September or October in New York, uh, and then it will grow a little bit in the fall, then over winter, kind of like you had a seed, grass seed on your lawn, 
in the fall and it survives the winter and starts again in the spring. Or you can plant barley in the spring uh, and then it just gets harvested a bit later in the summer. So we tested both of those. Uh, we also evaluated two and six row types. Uh, so again, just for those not familiar, that refers to the, the actual spike where the grain is. Uh, some barleys have six rows of grain and some have two. There's really not functionally a lot of difference between those. There's uh, historically some preferences for brewers. Uh, two rows tend to be a little bit more uniform kernels, a little bit more plump, uh, so maybe a little bit more malt extract. But the craft brewers in New York tend to be much more interested in two rows. So we focus our efforts there. And um, all the, the trialing that uh, Mark did, um, we actually really couldn't find any malting barleys that were that really checked all the boxes for us, that had consistently good malting quality, that were not at high risk for pre-harvest sprouting, that just did decently well for the farmer, uh, that had decent yield and decent disease resistance. And at the time, we were also having some issues with uh, winter kill for barley, because upstate New York can also have some kind of nasty winters. And barley is not quite as tough at survival. Winter barley is not quite as tough as winter wheat is. Um, we've since done more winter barley work. But so Mark kind of handed me the reins uh, for the two-row spring malting barley breeding program. Uh, so that's been my work at Cornell. Um, and, you know, so talking about varieties a little bit, um, the job of a plant breeder is to take existing variation in whatever your crop species is and to try to identify lines that are mostly what you want. It, it's hard to get something that's 100% good, um, but we did identify some spring malting barley lines, things like AAC Synergy, Craft, uh, which is from Montana State, uh, KWS Tinka, which is a European variety, um, Pinnacle, another North Dakota, North Dakota line, and a few others. Uh, we identified those as having some good traits that we were interested in. And then uh, my work has been to cross those, to interbreed those lines, and then to develop new populations to screen through and, and try to find uh, plant types that are better than those parents that we started with. And um, usually that process takes eight to 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of time to get genetically stable plant types and, you know, farming, you're growing things in different years and different locations and the weather changes from year to year. So to be confident that we've picked something good, uh, we need to test it repeatedly in multiple locations in multiple years. So all that uh, can take quite a while, but uh, we've used a couple tools uh, mostly something called genomic selection, uh, which kind of uses the, the basic genetic information of the plant types and some statistical modeling to help us predict which plants are going to perform uh, best overall. And that can help us speed up the breeding process a little bit. So I made the first crosses in the spring of 2016, and uh, we released we formally released the variety earlier this year uh, which is cutting off three or four years of the breeding process, which we were pretty excited about. 
the seed is not quite available to farmers yet, but hopefully uh, it will be very soon. Great. Now I'm, I'm going to go back to, to uh, Jason. So Jason, just overview. So you're, you're very involved in Western New York, uh, craft brewing and all that. Um, how have you guys followed and, and seen this this whole process of phasing in the farm brewery requirements and the the growth of New York State malt? So the phasing in has been on the brewer side has actually been a little bit of a challenge, but also an exciting challenge. And I say that because with the phasing of the percentages all the way through the last five or six years, and then again here in the next two years, going from sixty percent to ninety percent. We're, we're really literally experimenting on every batch. A lot of the breweries across the country dial in a recipe and stick to that exact recipe for the duration of their entire brewing operation. And in the meantime, we are essentially sliding in uh, New York State grains whenever possible to a recipe and trying to get to as close to 100% or at 100% of our beers utilizing New York state grains as possible. So over the last five or six years that we've been in operation, this has been the challenge and the exciting part of brewing for us in that we are constantly tweaking the recipes ever so slightly uh, in every batch to go from say 20% of one ingredient to 22% or 23%. And then eventually ramping that up as as much as possible to uh, eliminate some of the the national grains from the recipe altogether and replacing them entirely with New York State grains. So that what that's doing is it's actually creating uh, kind of a, a ultra local presence in the beers. And we actually just just this coming Friday will be uh, releasing a beer that demonstrates this this. Uh, you know, threshold of 100% grains from New York State and an educational component for the community. And that's been the, the, the biggest challenge is informing the community of what we're doing, why we're doing it, and how it impacts them on an economic level. So, for example, r- what we started with when we were opening up was, was really a, a small percentage of New York State grains because we understood that we could, we could utilize national brands with a lot of information from the testing side of things. We knew exactly what we were going to get. So as we started blending them at year after year after year, you know, what would be 20% is now 80%, in some cases 100%. And we, what we're finding is that the consumer over the years, as long as we don't make an extreme change, drastic change overnight, they're actually buying into this and they're finding that they really can't tell the difference as long as the ingredients are of the same quality, and we are finding that over the last five years, the ingredients have come tremendous ways with the, the, the quality and the consistency, and that has made a world of difference on the brewing side and the consumer expectation side. So this for us is not just an experimentation, but a practice in healthy economics and local economics, and it's an opportunity for us to educate people both on the industry itself from the the agricultural side of things and also the economic impact that it has uh, to the local economy. So this is really a a very interesting um, bill that was introduced and something that when we saw it was intriguing to us because it's important to 
um, to many people that when you're utilizing local ingredients, you're supporting the local economy. So New York State, you know, identified that as an opportunity area. And with the farm brewery bill uh, implementation, kind of kickstarted that. And, and again, as Paul alluded to earlier, created a, a, an opportunity for other states to model after what New York has done. And really, we've come such a long way in such a short amount of time. We still have a little bit of ways to go. But it, it, it plays evidence to the fact that where there's a will, there's a way. And as long as everybody's buying into it, these situations where you want to create sustainability and you want to create a new economic opportunity are truly possible by just putting in the efforts at all levels. And in this case, it's both development, as Daniel's alluding to, and also can, uh, the, the production uh, with, the, with the farmers and then utilization with the brewers. And of course, the entire driving factor is whether or not the consumer is going to buy into it. And we are proving daily that that is actually something that they value. And, um, and one of the ways that we've actually done that and highlighting that, as I, I said earlier, is that we're releasing a beer that all of the farm breweries in Western New York got together to collaborate on. Uh, it's called O Fudge, and it's an imperial um, porter. And that beer, every aspect of that beer is done with local ingredients. Even the canning, uh, the can art, and the marketing was all done by local groups. And, and this is exactly the kind of thing that is spot, uh, inspiring interest in the, the beer geek community. Uh, and just yesterday, we kind of toyed with that as kind of a prelude to this uh, and tried to say, you know, do you find local beer made with local ingredients more intriguing or less intriguing when you're looking to, to purchase a beer? And overwhelmingly, people said that it's more important to them that they're buying a local beer made with local ingredients. So we've got the data on the consumer side, and we're seeing tremendous strides on the development side. So as a whole, the industry really is getting closer and closer to complete sustainability within the state. Yeah, that's great, Jason. So now I'm going to go back to Daniel. I'm going to ask a different question. Daniel, like the going back to grains, so – What's the difference between growing barley or grains for livestock and growing it for malting barley? Sure. So there are a couple of different classes of barley. Uh, it's usually malt, feed, or food. So food is for human consumption and feed is for animal feed. Uh, so the biggest thing for malting barley is that it needs to have just the right balance of protein and beta-glucan. So uh, Protein is really important in a lot of parts of beer in terms of you know, having uh, foam retention and also something for the yeast to munch on while they're fermenting uh, the sugars from the malt, um, but then also just for some body to the beer as well. Uh, but you don't want too much protein. So I think if it gets above 12%, uh, that's kind of the danger zone. And I think even for craft malts, really closer to 10% is the sweet spot. But then beta-glucan is uh, a polysaccharide that is kind of, it uh, helps form the cell walls in the barley grain. And beta-glucan is what makes your oatmeal sticky. So this is found in other grains besides barley, but uh, beta-glucan is actually really good for human health, but it's not good for making good beer. Because um, if you can think about, uh, for a, from a brewing perspective, if you have basically oatmeal, 
in your mash tons or anything you're trying to you know move through a tube that's going to be a bad day so um feed barleys for animal feed tend to have higher protein higher beta glucan uh so they're really not good for making uh malt at all they also tend to germinate very slowly and as the maltsters say they don't modify very well uh, so the malting process is all about kind of breaking down the matrix of protein and beta-glucan that's surrounding these little starch granules. Um, and during the malting process, you're kind of, it's like opening a bunch of Christmas gifts all at once. Uh, you're un tearing the wrapping paper off, opening the boxes and getting to what you really want that's inside. And what we really want during the malting process is that starch to be available uh, so that that can eventually be turned into sugar. Uh, the beginning part of the brewing process. So, and then Dan, going to the testing and the trials, uh, how did you guys get uh, farmers to work with you? Uh, what kind of education were you doing? Um, because it, this is obviously you had to grow, you had to grow this barley in different parts of the state. Yeah. So we did have somewhat of an existing testing network, um, you know, uh, my boss, Mark, has been breeding wheat to Cornell for a very long time, and there are regional testing you know, across New York for wheat. Uh, so we tend to just kind of tack on the barley there. Um, but we did have a couple of people like Ted Hawley with New York Craft Mall in Batavia, New York, who have been really great partners. And he has some land that he's let us plant trials on. Um, so that's been really helpful. Um, I also want to mention Dr. Gary Bergstrom, who is uh, an extension pathologist at Cornell, but he's worked a lot with this malting barley outreach and education program as well. Um, so we've worked with him on some disease testing and trialing too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the malting barley community is is pretty small, but tight knit and supportive in New York. So um, you know, we try to do our testing in areas where malting barley is being grown. So we do have some in the Finger Lakes, but then also, again, uh, a few sites out in western New York where the majority of the grains are being grown. And we've had, we also have field days with Cornell where we share what we've learned throughout the year with our research uh, with, um, with growers and maltsters and brewers and anybody who's generally interested in malting barley. And then there's also an annual uh, Empire uh, Malt and Barley Conference that's been going on for the past four years or so. So if um, you, you guys have made this variety and you think that sometime in 2021, some brewers will start using it, uh, how long does it take to propagate, you know, to get this variety out there? And also, um, will you be making other strains of it? Yeah, so um, we grew a fairly large field of our of the new variety, uh, which again is called Excelsior Gold. It's, uh, it's a two-row spring malting barley. Um, we grew a large seed increase of that last summer in 2020. And that then we got, not, not exactly sure how much grain we got from that, but quite a bit. Um, I think the hope is to have it of at least uh, available on a limited basis this summer. Uh, I'm not entirely sure on that. It might be 2022 before it's really widely available. Um, but I, I'm hoping that it can at least get in the hands of, of some brewers uh, and maltsters this summer. Um, and again, since that's a spring barley, that means you plant it in April and that'll get harvested in probably early August. 
And we do have more, uh, more experimental lines coming behind them. Uh, there's one other line that is uh, the fruit of my research that is um, that I'm pretty excited about. Um, it's uh, one, one step behind where Excelsior Gold is in terms of how much seed we have, but I think that's a really nice candidate as well. And then we also have, uh, we started a winter malting barley breeding program because um, winter malting barley has actually become a little bit more popular in New York. And I think a lot of the growers have learned how to manage that really well. And I know uh, Jason or Dave mentioned Scala. That, that's a very popular winter line uh, that growers in New York like. Um, but we're hoping that we can have something that's a little bit better adapted to the uh, unique features of New York. So yeah, we're working on the winter stuff too. Well, that's great. That, that's a great intro. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is our first show of 2021. We're talking about a new New York State uh, barley strain. Um, let's go back to Paul Leone, uh, New York State Craft Brewers Guild. Paul, the, the big news uh, of the fall was that there was this new strain of New York State barley that, that was going to be really important for breweries, and there was a naming competition. So how did that go? I know it's we, I, it's – we missed the winner, but it's Excelsior Gold is the name of this barley. Um, t- tell us how the response to that, and you know a little bit of the we needed we needed good news this year. Let's put it that way. And I, this is a, this is good news for New York if you're thinking long term. There were a lot of responses, and there were a lot of great suggestions. Um, you know, Excelsior Gold was obviously the name, um, but there there were some you know there was there were some dumb ones like Multi McMalt Face and and some other ones, of course, that you would expect um, people to put in. Um, my favorite was Ezra's Pride. Um, that was uh, that's the one I voted for, but didn't get picked. Which is I never knew I never knew Cornell Ezra Cornell um, was the uh, namesake for Cornell University. So I thought that was great. Then we tried to a lot of people wanted to name it uh, Sorel Mark Mark Sorel, who who was the the you know one of the masterminds behind it. But he's like, oh, you got to be dead <laughs> um, in order really to get that naming. So uh, we we would rather have him alive. So needless to say, long story short, there were a lot of great, great suggestions. And, and Excelsior Gold um, really made sense. I mean, I think it's the obvious choice. And, and you know, it's just the, you know, you t- we're talking about malt, but, you know, we've been trying to do the same thing for hops as well. You know, Cornell has, 
really led the way in, in New York State um, in terms of, you know, creating such a thing. You know, I mean, they really created a new barley strain and, and we would love for them to do hops. So I think that the, the farm, the brewing industry in New York and, and agriculture in general would be much further behind if it wasn't for the really incredible brains um, behind the folks at Cornell and, and Daniel and Mark and Gary Bergstrom and, and all the, the great folks there. Um, uh, that that are doing great work for for the beer industry, kind of behind the scenes and, and silently. So it's really cool that you're you're shining a light on this. Great, and I, I'm back to Daniel. So Daniel, uh, keep 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 telling us. I'm sure there's quite a few points that that you 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 can share with us that we wouldn't even know to ask of you. Yeah, well, I I can go just a little bit more into Excelsior Gold briefly. For those that don't know, Excelsior is actually the state motto of New York. So that's why that is kind of the natural fit, as Paul said. And then, you know, barley is this really lovely gold color as it's maturing and beer is usually gold and hopefully it's profitable for growers and maltsters and breweries in New York. So the gold just all kind of works well together. Um, so there's all of that. Um, I One thing I did want to mention before I forgot, we, we have had a lot of really incredible support for this project. The only reason we've been able to do this breeding program so quickly, uh, you know, and genomic selection is not cheap. Uh, we have to genotype hundreds to thousands of experimental barley lines to find the ones that are going to be the best for our conditions. And we also utilized off-season nurseries in New Zealand to uh, basically get two growing seasons per year. And that costs a lot of money. Um, but we've had really great support from New York Ag and Markets, um, but also the Genesee Valley Regional Market Authority, as well as the American Malting Barley Association and the Brewers Association. So kind of all these different tiers of uh, support have really come together and, and allowed us to, uh, to really achieve this release in, in a very quick amount of time. Um, so just so out for, for anybody that is interested in the nitty gritty details of Excelsior Gold, um, the things that I'm excited about for Excelsior Gold and why we think it will be a better option than what is out there currently for spring malting barley, it has very good foliar disease resistance. Um, there are some diseases that attack the leaves of barley, namely something called spot blotch. So Excelsior Gold keeps clean green leaves throughout the growing season, which helps boost yield. Um, it's a little bit earlier maturing, which we found is tends to be a better thing for New York. Uh, it has at least uh, average fusarium headlight resistance. Um, that was something we looked at, but it was not our, our primary breeding target. Um, but it's, it's not worse than any of our other options out there. But it has very good pre-harvest sprouting resistance, which is something that we were really, really focused on. And uh, it does have pretty good malting quality as well. Uh, we've used the cultivar AAC Synergy, uh, which is a Canadian variety, is our standard for malting quality. Uh, that's bred for Western Canada and makes really nice malts, but it's also very risky because it's very prone to sprout damage in the field, which kind of ruins its ability to make good malt. So um, we think that we're, and we've uh, done a lot of research here trying to look at the connection between pre-harvest sprouting and malting quality. 
because usually you you can't have your cake and eat it too. Uh, usually, pre-harvest sprouting resistance means poor malting quality, and vice versa. Um, but we're hoping that we can, and we we are optimistic that we can combine both of those. Um, so I've spent a lot of my time at Cornell working on that project as well. Now I'm going to throw this out to the floor. I don't know if Dave or Jason or Daniel wants to answer this question. Um, ever since the 2012 and the the farm brewery licenses, I think there's been some talk, maybe just from me, that one day, based on an ingredient, I used to think it would be rye. <laughs> based on an ingredient, there could be a New York style of beer, the same way that uh, some distillers have have seized on rye as their empire rye. Um, do you think that this barley is going to impact a style or taste of, of New York beer and elevate it? Or is, it, is this just a base and we're just getting started? From the breeding side, our goal actually is to, to not have an impact flavor too much. We Our goal is to have a barley variety that is that makes uh, ideally great base malt because that's what most brewers are using most often. Um, so hopefully it's kind of a, a, a palette for them to do whatever they want to do with it. Um, I would think maybe that the, the New York grown hops have a little bit more regional character or even terroir, if you want to say that. Um, hopefully the barley just makes a good beer. But that, that's from the breeder's perspective. So the brewers might have something else to say about that. Great. And Dave? Yeah, he was. He echoed what I was just about to say, honestly. Uh, one of our goals as a farm brewery from the friendly get-go was to try to be on the forefront of developing whatever that New York style might be. We haven't done it yet. Uh, like Dan was saying, uh, hops are going to give it more of that character. But my personal opinion is I would love to see a new style come out uh, that, that isn't IPA, that isn't style, that isn't something we've seen yet. I don't know what it is, but maybe this is the driving force that gets us there. When all of these new ingredients that are being developed and grown in New York State are the driving forces in, in what we as brewers brew. Um, so, you know, we use those ingredients. They do, you know, have their own flavor to them. Um, and people start getting used to that, and then they start desiring that, we might get to a point where there'll be regional New York state styles, uh, something we also would love to see. Um, it is heading in that direction. Don't know what it is yet, but you know, as more and more hops get developed and more and more uh, malts get developed and different malting processes get developed, we get different flavors. And you know, if, if you get some, some uh, you know, brewers out there who are really willing to to go out on a limb a little bit and try these things and be kind of at the forefront, uh, they'll reap the benefits uh, as they develop these things along the way. And seeing, instead of being late to the party, uh, they could be some of the ones developing uh, some of the new styles that we hope to see in the future. I hope to be one of the ones who, who, who does that. So uh, we're, we're on board with, with trying all the new stuff. So. Great. So uh, Dave, when, when uh, you hear about a, a new strain of barley or malt like this, uh, what are some questions that you ask? If you don't mind asking Dan a question or two that he can answer. Yeah, I don't mind that at all. I was just thinking that as he was speaking. I, I do agree that the, the, the effort at the beginning should be uh, base malts and you know trying to get the consistency and, and all the things the maltsters are looking for 
so that they can give us a consistent and quality product. I'm more curious from, you know, from the maltster's point of view is what else can they do with this new variety? They may be able to develop some, some different uh, types of methodologies with this grain that, that produces something really neat. I mean, we've worked uh, directly hand-in-hand uh, -hand with uh, Niagara Malt, um, Bob Johnson, out there, and he developed a honey-style malt, like, uh, like uh, Gambrinus makes honey malt. He makes one now called Mille d'Or that we use all the time that he developed. We worked back and forth, and we did brews, and we gave him uh, feedback, and he tweaked his methodology to make this malt for us, um, you know, based on the, the base malts that he gets. So I'm wondering if something like that is in our future. And I, I, I don't know if Dan can answer something like that, but I mean, working directly with the maltsters, they're kind of the in-between between the growers and the brewers. So, you know, what that they can come up with for us uh, to use, we're definitely all ears. Yeah. You know, I think that I've realized, I realized pretty early on in my time in the, the barley world in New York, the, the malt houses are really key in all of this. They're kind of the go-between between the growers and the brewers, and they've we've had some really fantastic malting partners in the breeding process too. And again, I think our goal as breeders is we want to release a, a product, a barley variety, that is consistent and relatively easy to grow for the farmer, but also that the malt house can use how they want it to use. I think a lot of that creativity is probably going to come from the malt house where they're trying new styles, new flavors, you know, small batches. I know that there's, uh, you, you can get all sorts of different malts from New York, smoked, um, roasted, all, all different sorts of grains. And again, on the barley side, we kind of just want to be this blank canvas where the maltster can manipulate it however they want based on what their customer, the brewer, wants. Um, so hopefully we've been able to do that with Excelsior Gold and any varieties we release going forward. Um, but I agree that a, a New York regional style beer would be really exciting. I mean, the New England IPA was kind of an organic thing that kind of came out of, it had been bubbling for a while and then kind of blasted on a scene. Now everybody makes New England IPAs and it would be really fun to see something from New York have the same impact. No, that's for sure. Are there any other um, grains that, that you guys are working with at Cornell that with the intention of making them better for, for beer? So not besides barley. Uh, we do work on wheat and we trial some rye and we also do a little bit of oats, but we're not evaluating oats or rye specifically for brewing. Uh, I know that we've tested a couple of our white winter wheats. Uh, I think Medina, uh, Mark might be upset if I get done wrong. I don't work on the wheat so much, but I think it's Medina that um, has a nice malting profile because wheat, wheat is a pretty common addition to uh, pharmacy wheat beers, but even in things like uh, you know, New England style IPAs, as I mentioned, they have Part of the reason they're so cloudy is they have a lot of oats and some other, and sometimes wheat in there as well. Um, so there's a lot of room to put New York grains in beer that's not barley. But we're we're mostly focused on barley from the brewing side right now. Yeah. And then what, what about the cost? I mean, it, it is that something that you guys are talking about at Cornell, the cost, you know, for the brewers to use these new varieties? 
Uh, not from the breeding program too much. I know that there are a number of uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension folks that I think are a little bit more involved in the economics of it. Um, but we're what I'm doing is more focused on just trying to provide a new variety, a new product for the farmers to grow. Um, so I, I'm not the best person to ask about that. Perhaps Paul has something, I had a better idea of that than me. Yeah, Paul, you want to join and tell us about like uh, the impact? You know, we're getting close to 90% New York State ingredients for farm breweries. Give us a little more big picture and um, how, how brewers choose the, you know, the price point uh, of their malt and choosing a local beer. Local, local malt might be more expensive, especially in the early stages. Yeah, it, it, you know, buying local certainly is more expensive, which I, I know, um, you know, a lot of brewers can tell you. You know, we, we as an association, when this law was, you know, created in 2012, you really had to put your stake in the ground without really knowing what the future held. So, so it was 2060, 90. Um, you know, looking at it today in 2021, the association actually last year, um, you know, we took a hard look at the, uh, at the, um, at the law, how many brewers were using local grains, and we actually are going to try to modify it um, by making it. So right now it's, you have a farm brewing license and a farm brewing license only. Uh, that means no, not adding a micro license to it or anything else. You know, every single beer you make has to be 60% hops and 60% all other ingredients, excluding water. And so, um, you know, we, we felt that if we modified the law just a little bit, um, we would get even more brewers on board. So what we, we're going to put in legislation to modify the law to make it 60% in aggregate, uh, meaning that um, you know, 60% by the end of the year, you know, 60% of all ingredients that, you know, that you, you put in your beer is the 60% hops and all other ingredients. And then the other 40%, um, you can make the New England IPAs and some of the other beers that you are a little bit more challenging. Um, I wouldn't say impossible, but a little bit more challenging due to the fact that you're dealing with proprietary hops and other things that you can't grow in New York State. So, so I guess to make a long story short, we're really trying to make the law more flexible. So more farm, more brewers who are on the fence about using New York um, will start using New York and uh, maybe add the farm license to their micro license or, or, or whatever license they have to further advance the industry. And, and we really... Uh, we have a farm brewing committee that's pretty active, um, and and so we really uh, don't think that we should get to the ninety percent, which is supposed to be um, in twenty twenty four. So we might try to kill that altogether and just run with the sixty percent. So we are looking at some modifications, which time um, has allowed us to to sort of take a step back and and uh, you know figure out, and and we feel like that you know more brewers are. Um, getting on board with local in, er, in the early days, it was always like, I'm not going to use local because um, the hop sucks and the barley sucks and, and it's crap. And, and I think that, you know, the maltsters that got on board in the early days, um, you know, you got to understand that malting is a craft like brewing is a craft. And, and in the early days, they were trying to hone in their craft. Today, I don't hear any of that anymore. I think that all of the maltsters in New York state have really refined their craft. And um, there's no reason why any brewer should be hesitant to use locally grown uh, malt. Um, and then the farmers too, um, you know, growing the barley are just so smart and, and so, um, you know, skilled at growing 
it's really hard to grow barley. You know, one one weekend rain can ruin an entire crop. And and so um, it's tricky, as, as Dan said earlier, to grow, you know, barley in New York State. But but everything seems to be coming together. And, and um, you know, we're, we're really happy where things are right now. Great. And, and Paul, what, what's one question for Dan that I didn't ask? <laughs> well, it's funny. You know, one thing I learned about, about barley is the word Don. Um, and Don, I didn't know could be toxic. So when you talk about how tricky it is, which people, the public doesn't know, how tricky it is to grow barley in, in New York State. Dan, talk about like, I mean, really how tricky it is, how hard it is for farmers to grow barley that can be malted for brewers. Sure. So the really tricky thing about this disease, Fusarium head blight, is that so one, the conditions in New York are often perfect for it. The fungus loves warm, humid, wet weather, which again, if you've spent any time in upstate New York, that is not uncommon in the summers. But the other really tricky thing is that you can see the effects of the fungus if you're walking through a field, what's called a blight. So that the kernels are kind of brown and shriveled. They don't, you, know, you can tell there's something wrong with them. But the toxin level is often not correlated with the visual disease symptoms. So you can have, your field can look pretty clean if you're walking through and scouting it, but you can still have uh, a Don toxin problem. And um, I th the, the real issue here is that, so the Don is actually water soluble. So when you're making the malt, the first step is to steep it in water. And a lot of that Don will actually wash out in that steep water. But again, the fungus is still living on those grains and the fungus likes warm, humid conditions, which it has in abundance in the malt house. So you can have extra fungal growth as you're malting and that, that's a big problem. Um, so again, fungicides are an option, but they, the timing is very particular. You have to get it right around flowering time. And if it's rainy during flowering time, you can might not get it on there. Um, and if your grain, if the farmer's grain line is above a certain level of the toxin, I think it's one part per million, uh, that's pretty low and you can have that rejected. And, you know, Jimmy, you're talking, you asked about costs, the difference between animal feed quality barley and malting quality barley is huge in terms of costs. I'm not sure what it is right now, but it's on the magnitude of dollars per bushel or dollars per whatever your unit of measurement is. And that makes a big difference to the grower. Um, and that's one of the reasons why some growers have been reluctant to try barley because it is tricky to grow. Um, but we do have some pioneering growers in the state that have, that are really starting to master it as, as Paul said, and um, hopefully that continues to grow as they can share their knowledge. Well, that's great. Hey, we're going to wrap it up soon. I just want to get Jason on one more time. So Jason, tell us about Western New York Pride and why you guys have been so committed to uh, being a farm brewery. Well, we are really looking at the logistics of community here. Uh, Buffalo has a very, very unique connection to its community. Every single person here has this unbelievable sense of pride. And it's very different than a lot of the other places that you, you travel to or you have friends that live in, and when they when when you have visitors, you really get a feel for it because you kind of take it for granted because it's something that you 
you have as a part of who you are. And then people come into town and the next thing you know, they're just in awe as to how you can just go anywhere and meet new people and and they absolutely leave as, as friends. So the idea behind what we were doing when we started was to, to bring that experience into the brewery from, you know, from basically from, from farm to pint. And the, I, the thought process was, can we connect people to the community in, a, in an additional way through beer? And the obvious way of doing that was to, to source it as locally as possible. And what we do then is we have a, a pretty good uh, explanation with the new customers who walk in the door at the tasting room to explain to them not only why it matters, but what it is. And we're finding that there's so many people out there that still don't know what a farm brewery really represents and why it's so important to the community and to the industry as a whole. Because when they realize that we're buying grains that are grown, you know, 30 miles to the north of us and then malted 35 miles to the east of us and, and we're keeping everything that we do within a hundred mile radius, that's, that's a big deal to a lot of those people. And more importantly, it's, it's actually quite a surprise. So we really try to focus on delivering that experience that you get at, at any regional brewery at our establishment through local connectivity. And, and for us, that's, that's really a, a big uh, sense of, of who we are. And it's kind of defined our path in, in this whole, um, you know, this, this gambit of, of being in business. And we're really taking it, taking it in stride, especially with what we've gone through over the last 12 months. I mean, we've seen, you know, tremendous growth and then all of a sudden, uh, this stagnation through uh, the pandemic and and what's what's kind of come out of that is people are looking even closer at where they invest their money, where they get their products from and, and how they can support their community. So what we're able to do now is really deliver that and expand the message further to explain that we're not the only ones doing this, that there's other ones across the state and that we're working with the industry uh, suppliers on all ends to make sure that we're trying to keep everybody involved at the local level. And, and I think Dave would echo this in that this really resonates with not only our customers, but with our staff and, you know, our family and our friends, we kind of explained to them what we were doing. It, it may not have dawned on them at the time how important this is, but they've all come to kind of embrace it and celebrate it now with us. And, and they're some of our greatest proponents as well. So I think that's, that's really to summarize it is, is what it, what it all is all about for us is, is celebrating New York, celebrating in our case, Western New York, what we can do with, uh, within just our region and designing something brand new with local ingredients. And, and one of the things I think that was a little bit missed that I'd like to touch on is, we have an, a tremendous amount of, of local agriculture and it includes fruits and veggies. So when you're looking at beer, is, there's nothing more interesting than, than throwing some, some local um, additives or adjuncts into your beer to give it that little extra flair um, and, and realize that that was a local product that was harvested two weeks ago. You know, it's, there, we do this with a lot of our suppliers, a lot of our, the farms that we work with. We schedule as close to their harvest as possible, a beer 
that we can literally drive up the road as soon as it's harvested and then toss it into the mash or the foil or the, the secondary to get that fresh, fresh flavor, the colors that come out of things and uh, bring that into the experience that our customers get at the tasting room. And that really, when you explain that to people, that story is tremendously impactful. Well, that's great. It's been a really great show. Um, Paul, again, thank you so much for helping to put together the show. And uh, Dan, uh, really appreciate the work that you've done. Um, And Jason and Dave, looking forward to visiting you guys one day out in Buffalo. Um, We'll see how far the bills get, but that's also a bit of exciting (laughs) New York State news as well to have a a, a really good football team now. Um, So thank you guys for everything. Big shout out to our uh, engineer, Matt Patterson, and our intern, Caroline Fox. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us here on Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Syndicate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.